The Magic Book Club Podcast. Sinclair McKay. Welcome to the Magic Radio Book Club Podcast. Oh, thank you very, very much for having me at all. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, a Sunday Times bestseller, no less. I'm too modest to, to blow my <laughs> trumpet about that, but, but yes. <laughs> uh, that was for the Bletchley Park uh, Brain Teasers, as well as the best-selling Secret Life of Bletchley Park. Uh, and out now uh, to buy in all good bookstores now is the... Just, I mean, like massively frustrating and challenging uh, and equally gorgeous, uh, the Scotland Yard puzzle book out now. Um, uh, well, I don't know whether or not you realise this, but you are going to be um, the person responsible for many arguments in our household. <laughs> Me and my husband are literally think... grabbing this book off each other to try and get through all the different puzzles. You're very kind, but I think that's, but I think that's one of the essential elements of this, is that hopefully it's a book that's going to appeal to uh, the entire family over Christmas. Uh, whole households over Christmas will be sort of scrapping and sort of arguing and, sort of, and, and, and being competitive over, over these puzzles, I'd hope. And it would take everyone's mind off Brexit too. Oh God, don't we need that? <laughs> um, uh, to, I'll be the first to admit it. This was, I mean, there were, there, you kind of lull us into a false sense of security for the first few puzzles and we're kind of like, oh, I can do that, that's all right. <laughs> and then it just gets harder and harder and harder and more complicated. I have to say as well, for those people who don't know about the book, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's also sort of bookended, each puzzle chapter is bookended by a piece of history, some explanation, yes. a different take on a different part of Scotland. Scotland Yard's history, yes, because, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, the, because the history of Scotland Yard is, in a sense, uh, one branch of the history of puzzling, really, because uh, the, 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 the great detective stories have that element of puzzling at the, the core of them, and I think that's why we find them so enduringly fascinating. And the other thing about Scotland Yard is that it not only has this amazing history of the most astonishing detectives, the most amazing feats of, sort of lateral thinking <laughs> and cunning, kind of raptor-eyed, kind of detail-spotting genius, uh, but it's also... Uh, Scotland Yard is, if you mention it to anyone from around the world, it conjures up this instant image, doesn't it? Of, the uh, 70s revolving the sign 70s revolving that you mentioned. Sign, but also a kind of uh, historical uh, foggy London <laughs> wreathed in sinister mists. And, Do you think and Americans get really that's... disappointed when they turn up now and they're like, Where, where's the smoking pipe and <laughs> yes, the fog? Yes, exactly. And where are, the, where are the policemen's whistles and people being chased down alleys with moist cobbles? Uh, all these kind of things that we could have expected. But the, history, the real history of Scotland Yard isn't so very far removed from that. There are some extraordinary real-life stories that go all the way back to 1829, when uh, the institution of the Metropolitan Police uh, first came about. And, and, and so these puzzles are kind of directly inspired uh, by the skills that the detective department of Scotland Yard uh, cultivated from when it started in 1842 onwards. It's it's absolutely amazing. And, you uh, you know, you've sort of explained it in part. Did you, did you, did you start historically with a sort of you know a timeline in mind or did you start with cases how did you how did you start wow. about bringing this together because there's i mean there's sort of infinite numbers of 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 examples and of conundrums that you could have chosen yes absolutely but uh, the but the history of the yard there wasn't so much a timeline as looking out for those fantastic stories of detectives pulling off kind of incredible feats particularly in the pre-technological age you know these days uh, we've got all the kind of the digital sort of, uh, facial recognition technology you could hope for and all the rest of it. but Back in, back in the 19th century and back in the early 20th century, how did they do it? How did they solve cases such as the man in two places? Or how did they solve Love real the life... two places. The man in two places. And how did they solve real, real life locked room mysteries like the Mile End murder of 1860 uh, when the wealthy widow, Mrs. Emsley, was found in her <laughs> locked house and 
brutally bludgeoned uh, and no sign of how the killer could have got in or out. How would you go about in 1860 solving a crime like that? So this book is partly uh, puzzles inspired by that kind of lateral thinking, but it's also uh, the real-life puzzles that these detectives, uh, uh, these detectives face. One of the most famous early detectives in the early 20th century was called Inspector Fabian, and yeah, he was so big that he actually got his own television series. Uh, that's quite something, isn't it? quite yeah. something in the 1950s. Uh, television stories based on his real-life cases. And he had a motto uh, for each and every detective, which still resounds through the ages today, which is, give your eyes a chance. No matter how extraordinary or mysterious or insoluble a problem may look... <laughs> As you walk into that room and you see either the body on the floor or you see that uh, Lady Huffingham's priceless pearls have been stolen by a society jewel thief and all these things seem insoluble. Every problem has a solution. Every mystery has an answer. And the whole point of the detective department, the philosophy that sprung up, uh, was not only being able to be a lateral kind of genius, but also being incredibly dogged, knowing that you will find the truth in the end. There is, and the the puzzles really sort of combine that brilliantly. So there are the there are the puzzles that are completely lateral that I just go next, can't do that. <laughs> can't, I literally have no idea. Was the one of the first ones that that was like that? Um, uh, the oh, what was it? Which one was it? Not the murder museum. There's one in it. Maldock so, Manor? Yes. Yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> Literally no idea where to start with that. And then there are the others uh, that are kind of sort of nonverbal reasoning, combining letters and words that they, you know, the, this, and it combines the book, the puzzles combine what you just said so well, because there are those that just appear to you that you, you know, the combining words or moving shapes or taking the bones off the pile. And then there are yes. the ones that you do have to be persistent with. And that's just literally a matter of detail and and time and effort. Yes, and, and patience and knowing that you will get there in the end if you could have stick at it. And I think Maldark Manor, the puzzle, is one of those, it is specifically designed. So the, the, the setup is you have a manor, there's been a murder, you have to uh, you have to basically sort through the suspects and sort through the rooms each person moved through in order to solve the crime. But there's only a very particular sequence of rooms and the, the order that people move through uh, that'll help you unlock the whole thing. And yes, you, you, you could just sit there with your head in your hands for hours. Or you could be like Inspector Fabian and realise <laughs> that if you're just cool-headed about it, you'll get there in the end. And as I say, hopefully, uh, there'll be that kind of Christmas element of competitiveness where the family members will be competing against each other to solve it before the other one. Are you available over Christmas at all? Because I, I, I think you telling these stories is just about as good as it gets. You can set the scene and then we can all play. It's true, but I would be the world's most hopeless detective, though. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, that was the, that was the question. I mean, this is this is. The, were you ever tempted? Because I mean, you're you're a journalist by 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 I'm trade. I'm a journalist by trade, and yes, I, I suppose journalism is is a much quicker, less less patient uh, occupation. I think that, uh, but. It doesn't it necessarily always end in the truth either. It's oh, opinionated. What a thing to say! It's 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 uh, it's. I suppose in the same way you have to have that approach to research, investigation. Well, um, research for this was a fantastic treat actually because I was able to get into the Scotland Yard archive. Were you indeed? Indeed, wow. so and fantastic. I mean, it's just an absolute treasure chest of Scotland Yard history, uh, both in terms of uh, files they got, but also in terms of fantastic kind of memoirs. 
thousands of and logbooks and police station could have uh, memorabilia. It's fantastic. And had you had, had you kind of sort of cherry picked some uh, some cases that you were familiar with before you go in there? I mean, that's like a kid in a candy store. Uh, no, well, exactly. I mean, you could just, you could spend a lifetime in there. No, I mean, I was, I was just spent some, some ages in there, so absolutely reveling in all the different cases that I was finding and all the different cases that are now kind of sort of slightly forgotten to history, but which were really yeah. so big at the time. Uh, you know, I mentioned, for instance, the Mile End murder, but there are also fantastic society jewellery thefts. I love uh, that, that story. Completely forgotten now. Uh, well, there were several actually. There, there, there's the, the, the one at the beginning I've read, um, which is uh, the, uh, the no, the two of them, the two, the the woman and the the couple that were involved in the jewellery theft. Yes. Um, oh, hold on. Which they one were. Are they? <laughs> they were. Let me Was just. That? The pearls and the sugar yes, lumps. the pearls. Yes, that was the the Dowager Duchess of Sutherland. Yes, there we go. The Dowager Duchess of Sutherland, uh, who fell victim to one of the most notorious uh, <laughs> jewel thieves of the time, Harry the Valet. Harry the Valet. Harry, Harry the Valet. Um, and the, the the stratagems that these jewel thieves used back in the the, the early days of the twentieth century are kind of fantastic to kind of read about now. And there was a Duchess of Sutherland, but there was another Duchess who fell victim to. Uh, the pearls and the sugar lumps, which was a package of priceless pearls being sent uh, by train from London to Paris. And this was in the early years of the 20th century. Guards around these pearls, just absolutely priceless jewelry. Uh, the whole thing completely monitored all the way across the channel, then arriving at Gare du Nord, and then arriving at the address in Paris, and the package was opened up, and the priceless pearls had been replaced with sugar lumps. How? Dun, dun, dun. How? How? Would it get away with it if it wasn't for you pesky kids? Exactly so. Scotland Yard were on the case, uh, the very finest of Scotland Yard, and uh, teaming up with the French uh, police too. And again, it just looked like one of those insoluble mysteries because there's no CCTV for anyone to consult. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, I mean, when you start like, reading it and you kind of think, uh, I mean... You know, people weren't. I mean, people people weren't. When you first start, I mean, a telephone call was was yeah. was was something of an effort. Yes. Uh, yes. Let, let alone <laughs> forensics. Let alone any of the really advanced sort of you know uh, any of the advanced forensics and technical yeah. technology that we have to at our fingertips now. Well, I think one of the things was uh, that from quite early on, the detective department realised that it wasn't just about technology. It was also about a really properly deep understanding of human nature in the hinterland of human nature. Uh, they could think themselves inside the minds of thieves and killers. Uh, they almost well, we had, became it. And there but, was that historical moment, I guess, where sort of Freud, where you, yeah, who you mentioned, so yeah. Freud starts kind of explaining human nature. Yes. And at the same time, we start, you know, printing newspapers, um, you know, on a much more a much more industrial scale. Yes. So there's this... There's this crime is yes. one of the biggest aspects of those newspapers because readers can't get enough of uh, And tell me crime. about this, the newspaper that was published that was uh, the start, really, of the first ever kind of database. Uh, there was a newspaper that was, put, that yes. was printed... Which which was, which was just... Uh, it was all about crime news and it was printed for the police. It was printed for the very, very early police and it was called Hue and Cry. And it was before there was any kind of national database or before certainly before telephones or telegrams, all the rest of it. The way that the police uh, across the country, the, the very, very early proto-police across the country were able to, sort of, to keep up with what was going on in other towns was this police newspaper, Hue and Cry, which was filled with, <laughs> filled with all the crimes that had been committed and Amazing. who had committed them. So if a criminal turned up in your town and you were reading your copy of Hue and Cry in the police station, there's, ah, Harry the Valets uh, turned up in Sheffield this week. <laughs> ah, keep it out of So that was the earliest... And so you can see from that how... I suppose newspaper sensationalism came out of that because then suddenly the wider reading public wanted some of this too. You know, we want to read about 
extraordinary, weird murders. We want to read about manifestations of ghosts in graveyards. That was one of one of the biggest problems for the early police curiosity. <laughs> it's not a ghost, okay? It's, it's telling a person. The public, it's not a ghost. <laughs> Please go back to it. I know it's striking midnight of the clock. And so, yes, uh, it could have went hand in hand. So, and you, if you look at Victorian newspapers now, again, which is just so addictively... I can uh, imagine. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. That's so addictively compulsive. But the police intelligence columns of those Victorian uh, newspapers are just... You know, we think today might be sensationalist in terms of coverage. Oh, they knew about sensationalism then. I'm sure. Every murder was covered in the most extraordinarily gory detail. Well, we had, I mean, we had, you know, we we had so much great literature that came, you know, so much great fiction that came uh, as a result of gruesome murders, whether that is Dickens, you know, through to obviously Holmes at Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. But even, um, oh, uh, Wilkie Collins as well. Wilkie Collins, The woman in white that we, that was recently back on the television as well, you know. Absolutely, yes. And, and it's so funny to see how Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens were directly inspired by the new detective department of Scotland Yard, which, as I said, had opened up in 1842. And one of the earliest detectives was uh, Inspector Charles Field. And Dickens was absolutely gripped by Inspector Charles. He wanted to know about everything to do with his work and how he went about catching thieves and criminals. And so Dickens went out on nighttime patrols with him into the deepest, darkest wow. rookeries of Victorian London, uh, going through the uh, the most treacherous streets, going into some dens of thieves. Inspector Charles Field had the most incredible beat because he not only could have patrolled, uh, as I say, uh, the, 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 these terrible Victorian rookeries, he also sometimes patrolled the British Museum at night in order to keep an eye on the Egyptian mummies. What did he think? Was, oh, so they weren't stolen? He didn't think they Just, were... <laughs> What did you think was going to happen? You can see how Dickens Dickens was absolutely gripped by that. So Dickens' novel Bleak House, uh, which was uh, in the early 1850s, is not actually a detective story in itself, but there is a character called Tulkinghorn who gets murdered. And there is a detective, Inspector Bucket. And Inspector Bucket is the kind of prototype, uh, brilliant fictional detective that we kind of see now. He's he's kind of genial, he's eccentric, he waggles his fingers in the air, he joins in and sings songs, but he's lethal. As yeah, well. absolutely. He moves through every level of society, from lowest to the most aristo- aristocratic level of society, with no fear or favour. Uh, he questions absolutely with us of the gimlet eye, and he does that thing that Columbo <laughs> later did, where he will uh, Just question the suspect. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He'll sort of say, "Well, I think that's about it for the time." He'll get to the door and then turn around and say, "Oh, but there is just one more thing." And then here comes the lethal question. And they, ah, Charles Dickens was doing that in 1853. So you have him, then you have Inspector Cuff, uh, yep. Wilkie Collins, and then, of course, uh, in the 1880s, you have Sherlock Holmes, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's great creation, who in turn inspired perhaps as a generation of new detectives to come oh, into Scotland. Yard. I mean, and, and, and to this day, and to this day, I think, you know, we're, we're, we talk about it a lot in the, in the media, you know, on the television and radio and podcasts, that our fascination for for real crime is, is at an all-time high. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your explanation for that? I mean, is it is it still just based in the fascination of who done it, Or is there something gorier and darker about it? But, I mean, we are consuming so many, so many crime podcasts, whodunits, uh, uh, you know, mysteries... It, yeah. there, there are entire TV channels dedicated there to are, crime. There are, there are, and I don't think it. I don't think it is entirely to do with kind of, uh, gore and uh, dreadful details. I mean, that is. I mean, obviously, that is certainly a part of it. There is that kind of fascination there, which can't be denied. But I think, on top of that, it is that fascination of really. Some, uh, shining a torch into the darker corners of human nature. That's that's what makes all these stories so kind of fascinating. It's not just the crime. It's what uh, motivated it. Where did it come from? 
Uh, is there such a thing as a, a born killer, or, or are we all potential killers? Do we all have that kind of within us? I suppose that's the essential fascination, mm. that kind of uh, exploring the dense thickets of human psychology to see what we could have found in there, and knowing that the detectives spend their entire kind of working lives doing that. And you can think, how then do they kind of maintain their own kind of, uh, I suppose... Stability. Yeah, and uh, distance uh, from it. So professional distance from it, absolutely, yeah. Uh, So this is controversial. Uh, We were talking, me and my husband uh, were talking about this last night, because you can flick to the back. And I think, (laughs) I think, I was like that, I think you should publish, right, this is for the publishers, I think you should publish a book without the answers. (gasps) Like this, without the answers. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? (laughs) You might as well just go and work for Scotland Yard in that. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) But then having said that, uh, uh, we have some of the answers, but some of the answers are, uh, for instance, uh, in this book, we've also got historical exams that uh, were set for real-life detectives. Uh, these it's were brilliant. exams that were set in the 1930s. And again, to research some of that is just, just absolutely opens up a whole new kind of chunk of history that you never really could have thought about before. What were detectives being examined on in the 1930s? And you summed up a whole world of, kind of sports cars and... Yeah. and, 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 and Yes, what a shopping street looked like. It's kind of the fascinating sort of detail. But these questions were posed and they had their answers. So you would, you would sit there doing your detective sergeant exam and somebody, uh, you know, your superior would be marking it. And so we've got those answers at the back. And I think, you, yes, that's where you really do have to have answers because that's kind of points floor and all those. But we've also got uh, some vintage locked room mysteries too, the <laughs> real life ones. And also kind of uh, locked room mysteries in the 19th century too because everyone loves a locked room mystery. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. There are so many variations on yeah, it. Yeah, Who yeah. knew? There yeah. must be just a thousand variations on it. Yeah, yeah. So ingenious, every single one. So... Uh, We've taken the earliest examples from Edgar Allan Poe and some examples from G.K. Chesterton. And so, yes, I would recommend actually going and reading the stories themselves. When you are, what I'm imagining, we always like to ask um, our guests on the podcast about about their writing habits. Um, and uh, there are some people who are super organised and quite happy to sit anywhere. Uh, location isn't important on a on a laptop. There are other people who are surrounded by books. And uh, I mean, I'm imagining. I'm surrounded by books. Yeah. Right. Well, you're going to have to have things on walls, aren't you? Surely. Yeah. You know, sort of arrows. Well, you and... would rather hope one of those bookcases that turns around when you press the secret <laughs> button. Haven't you always wanted one of those? The bookcase yeah. that leads to the secret passage. Have you not got oh. one? Come on. <laughs> if Sinclair. I win the lottery, that's, I'm going to have one installed. That's every house should have one. But yeah, no, that's my kind of yeah. As I'm sitting absolutely surrounded by as many ancient books as I can find, and and you know, for, for something like this, it is kind of illimitable, really. There are so many different sources, uh, you know, even down to forensics, which largely started in the late 19th century with uh, fingerprints being used for the first time, and in I think of 1902. But the, the the idea of forensics was really invented by the Chinese in the 13th century. Oh, they're so Chinese. Right they're clever. Now they. And that again was fireworks uh, down and to, forensics. That's what yes, we'll do this exactly. century. And it was down to blood on a sickle. Uh, wow. Discovering who the murder was. Where did the flies, which sickle did the flies particularly go to? And it was the one with traces of blood still on it. And then tracing the owner of the sickle. This was the 13th century. So the idea of forensics has been with us for such a long time. But you can see that there are, there are so many different avenues uh, in this kind of particular story. There's Sir Bernard Spilsbury and his murder bag and the whole the whole thing about forensics becoming a science in its kind of own right, leading to solving mysteries like the brides in the bath. The brides... <laughs> Right in the bath. <laughs> um, I was. I wanted to ask you very uh, quickly as well about about Bletchley Park, which is yeah, you know sure. been 
so 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 central in the last you know a handful of years with the uh, the TV series and films and yes. do, do you advise? Have you ever advised no, on movies oh, and dude, series? I, I, no, heavens no, I I wouldn't dare. I would. I'd say that they've got such a good team at Bletchley Park uh, and the Bletchley Park Museum. They are on a level of expertise that I couldn't even begin to imagine. They're so clever. Uh, they're just as clever as the original Codebreakers themselves. Some of them. Uh, really brilliant. And, what's, what's and if you your... get a chance to go, I mean, you really yes, must. Yes, well, I need it's to. Such, it's on the as, list. As, what yeah. a fantastic museum it is. They've recreated the huts in which <gasps> the codes are broken. They've recreated them so perfectly that they've even got dummy cigarette ends and dummy ashtrays. Oh, wow. And they've got sound effects. And so you can see, I mean, you were talking about working conditions for writing, but when you're when you're up against Nazi codes and you know that what you're doing is the difference between life and death mm. in the Battle of the Atlantic or in the Battle of Britain, and you're sitting in this tiny little hut which is heated by this kind of stove... Uh, how did they? How did they do that? That really took some mental resilience to again to face up to these puzzles, which would change the course of history. History. Uh, I mean, yeah. And to apply that, I mean, I remember I was I interviewed uh, one codebreaker, Keith Beatty, who said <laughs> that very much it was very much like uh, if you were doing a cryptic crossword and someone suddenly pointed a gun at your head you wouldn't be quite so effective at doing the crossword. And he said, pressure at Bletchley Park was like that. You had to completely dismiss. You had to be completely abstract about it. You couldn't imagine what was going on like that because you had to keep your neural pathways clear enough just to take on this mathematical impossibility, yeah. which they did. It was. It's. It's a remarkable story. It's an amazing story, and um, I'm going to go back and and read your your take on it anyway in the <laughs> version of the book. I'm. I'm, I'm literally. I'm never going to get tired of this, and I'm going to go back and and get through most of them. I'm. I'm sure, uh, with a lot of help from my family and our friends. I'm. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's absolutely fantastic, and oh, you're absolutely you right. Uh, just in time for Christmas, it's going to be a. a, a, a the perfect stocking filler, um, okay. and if I if I if I get stuck, maybe with just give me a ring. the persuasion got... <laughs> of a of a mince pie and a cup of tea, you can come and regale us with more stories. Because when you talk about them, they really come alive. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and chatting about your oh, books. Thank Sinclair. you very very much for having me. Great honour. Pleasure.